You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, everybody, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive behind headlines that the mainstream media would rather you not know anything about, where we try to recover some lost history, and we try to explain the inexplicable. Uh, Thank you for joining us, number one. Number two, whatever you're looking at or watching or listening to us on, whether it's YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, uh, whatever the the platform is, we appreciate your time and effort uh, for doing so. And we ask you to please subscribe and leave a rating for us. We also want to get your comments. We want to hear what you say, uh, what you'd like us to cover as far as topics and guests. I'm having a little bit of problems with my earphone. That's okay. We'll get it in there. Um, Today we have a real treat for you. Joining us is Alexandra Snyder, the CEO of Life Legal Defense. Welcome, Alexandra, to On Watch. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on with us. Uh, What I want to talk to you today about is women's health, and uh, that's sometimes a euphemism uh, that the left loves to use for abortion, but we're talking about legitimate health. We're talking about safety, well-being, healthy lives, pro-life issues and agenda, and uh, Judicial Watch has been doing that battle for a long time, and we know that you have as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your organization and your work? So thank you. Yeah, Life Legal is a pro-life, pro bono, nonprofit law firm. Um, we handle all different kinds of cases implicating the protection of life. So we do a lot of um, a pro-life related speech cases. Uh, we defend a lot of uh, sidewalk counselors outside of abortion clinics. Um, we do employment discrimination based on pro-life use. So pharmacists and um, even in some cases, physicians, healthcare professionals and others who are forced to participate in procedures that violate their conscience. We represent them. Um, And then on the other side of the spectrum, we do a lot of cases involving the denial of life-sustaining care. So we will intervene to protect a patient, let's say with a brain injury or who's had um, a cardiac event and who is not able to make their own healthcare decisions where there is pressure from a hospital or sometimes sadly even from family members to um, prematurely end that person's life, so. It's a, it's a matter of defending really the most vulnerable. Yes. Um, and, uh, and we appreciate your efforts along those lines. One of the things that we both have a common interest in is uh, it's variously called, in the old days, it was called RU486. It's also called Mifeprex. Mephist- I always get the longer title wrong. <laughs> Mephistoprone, I guess, is the right way to say it. Uh, but it's the abortion drug. It's the pill. It's the morning after pill. Um, and it's, it's, been, it's been advanced aggressively ever since the Clinton administration. We can talk about the May 2006 report that we did. Uh, but you've had some great success along those lines in challenging that particular drug and the drug maker itself. Tell us about your legal work in that area. So um, first of all, I do want to say that um, it's not the, the morning after drug is different from the, the abortion pill that we're talking about. So. Um, that is an abortifacient for sure, but that is not a direct inducer of abortion necessarily all the time, like RU486 or Mifeprex. So what we've done is we've really tried to raise a lot of awareness about the prevalence of these drugs. We've done that for the past number of years as we've seen 
the um, the number of abortions overall that are done through this chemical means or these chemical means has increased exponentially over the last five to 10 years to the point where now um, well over 50% of all abortions are chemical abortions or abortion drugs. Um, and then in addition to that, we were contacted by a whistleblower and we um, engaged with the U.S. Attorney's Office to file a, a whistleblower lawsuit. It's called a KETAM action against Danko, which is the sole manufacturer of this abortion drug, Mifepristone, in the United States. So and we were able to get a um, quite substantial judgment against Danko for violating their labeling requirements. So. Uh, and Danko itself, the corporation, it's D-A-N-C-O, Danko, was actually created. The corporation itself was founded and created just to advance this particular yes. abortion drug. Isn't that correct? That is correct. It was created by the uh, Population Council, which was founded by John D. Rockefeller, who was a known eugenicist. And then the, the organization was led over the years by the, for one, the founder of the American Eugenics Society. I mean, this, this organization has deep, deep eugenics roots. And, um, and part of that effort to eliminate certain populations was um, creating this drug to uh, make it quote unquote easier for women to have abortions. And that was Danko, yeah. It's very interesting. There's Rockefeller involvement. That means a lot of dollars, a lot of money. And the movement, the eugenicist movement that you're talking about, really is notoriously racist. Yes. There's this idea, and I'm paraphrasing, and I'm deliberately using sort of loose language here, but there was an idea held by these people that, you know, there's too many brown people. Yeah. And that that's a general, general term, but that's a kind of racist language and thinking combined with Rockefeller money. And that that's what these people are advancing and promoting over the long term. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and Planned Parenthood is a huge part of that. Margaret Sanger was a known eugenicist. She was friends with all these people. She got her money right. from a lot of these people to start Planned Parenthood. And she was very overt in her statements about eliminating um, human weeds and other other groups that um, that we don't have. And even um, uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg echoed that because she talked about abortion as um, eliminating populations that we have too many of. And I said, you know, all of this that we're talking about, however unpleasant and distasteful, because it's really wildly racist in many ways, uh, that, that all sort of gets airbrushed out of history. Nobody really wants to pause and examine the historical foundations to this movement because they're humiliated by it. And if you make them stop and say, no, what, so what, what is the underlying, what's the philosophy? What's your thinking? What's the foundation for your organization? Where are you going? They get hysterical. They go out of their minds trying to distance themselves from the very thing that is at the root of what they're advancing. Yes. And I always, I always like to pause and kind of point at that and make sure everybody knows this just didn't materialize out of thin air in the 1960s with you know people advancing the promotion of the pill. No, 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 no. It goes much longer and deeper behind yes. it. And there's also a lot of money behind it as well. Yeah, and a lot of government involvement. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what's called the Jaffe Memo, where um, the U.S. government was getting advice from a Planned Parenthood 
um, I believe he was the president of Planned Parenthood at the time, um, on how to reduce our population through things like um, requiring like licenses for parenting or putting birth control in the drinking water. I mean, just things that really shock the conscience. Um, but these are the ideas that have been floated by these organizations and these type of eugenic people with eugenic intentions um, of throughout history. I mean, throughout our history anyway. So, yeah. So th this is the intellectual and the financial and the philosophical foundation for this entire movement and all the efforts uh, whether in a courtroom or in a lab or in an abortion clinic, this is the foundation for it all. And people should never forget that. Yes, absolutely. So back in May of 2006, yours truly was sitting in the Clinton Presidential Library in Little Rock, Arkansas. They had just opened the library and all the public records there that are controlled under the Presidential Records Act. And the very first thing on President Clinton's desk, literally the first day in office, were memos and directives and uh, email, all sorts of documentation. Uh, and the first thing he acted on was the legalization of, the licensing of uh, the drug then known as RU-46 from a French pharmaceutical firm called Roussel Uclef. And uh, a lot of weight was brought to bear. Uh, Clinton ended up sending his Secretary of State and his ambassador to France out to the drug maker and basically strong on them and told them, you will license a U.S. laboratory to create this drug or the full weight and pressure of the U.S. government will be brought against you. Not that that's intimidating or anything like that, but that was the threat that was made. No and it's pressure. quite extraordinary. Uh, yeah, no, that is unbelievable. And thank you so much for your work on that. That is tremendous. Um, it's just unfortunate that we now have an administration again who does not want to curb the use of these drugs. There, there is no such thing anymore as a somebody who is pro-choice. That term has gone out of favor, even with people in that formerly in that movement. It is now they are pro, overtly pro-abortion, explicitly pro-abortion, and there's no more abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. You never hear that anymore because. A, Abortion now is seen by these people as a common good, and the abortion drug that you're talking about is a way to facilitate that common good. You know, when it comes to that, uh, the decision this past year in the overturning of Roe v. Wade has uh, really driven the left off a cliff. They've gone completely out of their minds and have taken an incredibly aggressive position trying to really reverse the reversal. You know, they cannot stand that uh, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, and there's a lot of reckless and loose language that's used um, in des describing what the Supreme Court did, uh, but they essentially put abortion back into the hands of the states and let's very, let the states decide uh, on a state-by-state -state basis what they wish to do. Uh, explain that that dimension. Explain that that differentiation of what occurred. So, I mean, you're exactly right. That is what that is what Dobbs did. It um, not just back to the states, but back to people's elected representatives. So there could be, and there is a lot of pressure now to um, codify Roe through a federal abortion amendment, or not amendment, but a federal abortion law, for example. Um, 
And that the, the whole going back to the states, and I, I am very happy that we got the decision that we got in Dobbs, but it has some very serious implications because if you look at slavery, for example, I mean, we fought to get slavery out of the, the states and, right. and to get federal protections for um, for former slaves, for for blacks overall, and and to get those basic human rights and civil rights protections codified in our in our constitution. Um, now we're kind of, okay, yes, it's great that there are certain states that are restricting abortion to some extent, um, but you have other states like, Cal I live in California. I mean, California is, uh, they now passed a law that allows, actually allows abortion after but I mean, it's not abortion at that point. It's full on infanticide. But they allow for a woman to um, for any pregnancy outcome, including prenatal or perinatal death, which is that period shortly after birth up to a month after birth. I mean, it's just and in the state of New York did the same thing. Yes. And the, and the legislature, uh, when, the, when it was finally passed, they had a standing ovation. The New York State Legislature was up on their feet, clapping and cheering joyfully when they passed an identical law uh, in New York, which to me, you want to talk about uh, one of the key points in the downfall of Western civilization. Yeah. Uh, that is the mentality that sows the seeds of our destruction. You're absolutely right. And it's, I mean, it is really grievous when you think about look at these state laws and then now you have um, a slew of state amendments that are coming up we had we had ours in california it didn't really change things much because our abortion laws were already so lax but um you had michigan you have kansas ohio is coming up now with an abortion amendment that has a lot of support because people don't really understand what this what codifying abortion into a state constitution actually does it gives you a constitutional right to abortion which means you cannot really limit that uh, for example the ohio um, amendment says okay you can limit it potentially after viability but there are these gaping exceptions for women's health and that's not just physical health that's emotional health mental health educational health financial i mean virtually any reason that the, the it's the loophole that swallows the entire, that nullifies the entire uh, exception. One of the things you touched on uh, is that, uh, you know, there's a great parallel, and this makes people very uncomfortable also, which is why I love bringing it up. There's a great parallel between uh, slavery and abortion. And when you talk about things like the Dred Scott decision and line that up against the abortion, and you talk about property and three-fifths of a human being for the purposes of taxes, um, and then you draw the parallel to uh, human life and what the, some of the statements of the pro-abortion crowd, uh, it makes people very nervous. They get very upset, very excited. Uh, but there are a number of parallels between the two. Yes. Do, can you can you kind of just explore that a little bit for our audience? Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with the basic question of who is a protected person in the United States. So in the case of slavery, for example, um, and that that is I mean, there's not a more ex existential question for a government to to address and for a people to address. And when you categorically exclude people like like 
blacks at, at that time um, from protections, then you can exclude anybody at that point. I mean, you're just, you're creating personhood or you're defining personhood on the basis of really arbitrary characteristics, like somebody's color, the color of their skin or um, their ethnicity or something like that. Or in the case of the unborn, you're, you're defining a person, a human being out of protections based on the fact that they were, that they were created. I mean, they're, Again, there's nothing more existential existential than that than to say, okay, yes, we know that's a human being. Everybody knows that that's a human being, um, but we're going to say that human being has zero rights because of where that human being happens to be located or the conditions under which that person was conceived. I mean, it's just, um, it, or or if that person has a disability. Yes, yes. Suppose suppose they they don't physically get around well, or yeah. they're blind, or they have some quote unquote defect. This is, goes back to the eugenicist, yeah. the, uh, eugenics movement. You know, if they're not good enough for whatever reason, and who knows what that means, not good enough, um, well, then they're eliminated. Yeah. They're, they're, not, they're not worthy of having legal protection. And that's really sick thinking. And uh, yeah, I can tell you that when you make that argument to younger people, because I taught uh, at George Mason University for a few years as an adjunct, and I would deliberately bring up... Uh, you know, Dred Scott decision and line it up against abortion just to see what the students would do. And uh, on a couple of occasions, I had uh, African-American young women come up to me after the class and say, I never thought of it that way. And they were, one, one young lady was moved to tears over it because it's never presented that way. It's never discussed in that light. And uh, I think it's a mistake. I think we need to to focus on that and just pound away because it's a very effective way of knocking down the other side's argument. Yeah, I, I agree. And when you make that your linchpin, so in the case of slavery, that if if the right, the so-called right to own another human being is, is the center of your, I mean, like I said, is the linchpin. I mean, everything else will have to bow down to that. So the constitution has to bend to that. Every law has to bend to that every rational thought in your head that this, of course, this is a human being. Look at this, this is a human being that needs protection. Um, you somehow have to rationalize that away. And that's exactly what's happened with abortion as well, is that, um, every, again, everybody knows this is a human being. There's no question about it, but you have to have all these justifications. Well, you know, what if the mother is this, or what if the mother is that? I mean, and. I was in that situation, so I mean, I speak from my personal experience here that, that it can be very difficult to face an unplanned pregnancy, but that doesn't mean the solution is to end somebody's life. There are a lot of things that are difficult in in life, and the solution is not to to kill another human being. Um, exactly. That's really what it what yeah. it comes down to. Exactly right. Um, so in in the I guess in light of, or as a consequence of Dobbs, the Biden administration and all the affiliated leftists that uh, line up behind him, and they're not even, they're not even traditional Democrats of days gone by. This is really like the Bolshevik wing. These are the most yes. extreme lunatic left uh, folks, uh, but they're highly motivated and they're, they're militant in their, in their approach to these things. 
They've, uh, they've come up with 101 different ways to deregulate all sorts of things in an effort to promote more abortion. What else? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about deregulation and the impact on the states. So what um, what the Biden administration has done over time is completely deregulated the abortion drug. I mean, that's that's really its focus is it wants to get those drugs in the hands of as many women and girls, by the way. We're not talking about, you know, women over 18 and women that are theoretically able to actually consent to these things. We're talking about minors, 11, 12, 13 year old girls. And they they want to make it possible for any girl in any state to get these pills by mail without having to see a doctor. So you no longer have to see a doctor. You don't need to have a physical exam, which is extraordinarily dangerous because these drugs should never ever be taken if an ectopic pregnancy is suspected. So that can be fatal. Um, there is no ultrasound to determine the baby's gestational age to see, you know, I mean, if if you're if somebody's in the second trimester, it's much more dangerous for the woman to take it. Not only that, I mean, you're delivering a fully formed baby at that point. And I think people don't don't realize that um, they've also the said the, the, the sad thing is, and this is where it gets tough. People don't even want to look at that. They don't even want to consider or mentally even have the imagery of what that means. They just want to, you know, turn their blind eye. Oh no, 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 no! That's, that's, uh, that, that's unpleasant, you know. And they, they want to just drive right by as fast as possible. It, it is unpleasant. It is unpleasant to think, but it's unpleasant to realize that in this country we allow, the almost except for the the states, I think, fourteen states now that that do. Um, significantly regulated abortion, but we allow almost the unfettered killing of the most innocent human beings. That is an unpleasant reality, but it's something that we have to, We and I'm so glad you're talking about it because we have to address it. And as people of conscience or for, for those of us who have a conscience, we have to understand our role in that. If we're gonna be passive and just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, let a woman choose or whatever, um, we are, we are participating in that human slaughter. And, um, and and that is something I think that I would hope at some point our consciences would say, no, I have to, I have to stand up and say something. At least it, I have to at least talk to my neighbor and say, look, do you know what this actually is, what abortion actually is? So, um, and then just to go back and, to your- and, oops, and I'm, I'm gonna draw another historical parallel for a second, and that is, uh, you know, the, uh, the residents of Dachau, Germany yes. in Bavaria, they, they need to explain how they didn't realize what was going on at the camp, yep. right? I, I went to Dachau and, over the summer. Um, my, my family is from Germany, and so I went to Dachau with my son over the summer. And, I mean, it is astonishing how close the homes are. I mean, and these are not homes that were just built recently. These are homes that were there at the time that right. the camp was built. And and where people just, cl they close their windows, close their doors. I don't want to smell the smoke. I don't want to see the smoke. I don't want to know what's going on there. I don't want to hear the cries. And um, and, and again, I think that's, there is a very strong parallel there with what's happening with abortion clinics. I mean, people drive by Planned Parenthood in every community and say, I don't want to know what's going on in there. Exactly. And so I, I keep pausing and hitting the button on these historical examples, but to me, they're very compelling. And what, it, what people would get up in arms about, oh, slavery's outrageous. Of course it is. Yeah. 
no argument. I agree with you. And, it, and there's a reason why we fought a civil war over yeah. it, right? Uh, oh, the Holocaust is un, unimaginable cruelty on a scale we can't imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so that's why I punctuate our conversation with these things, because like you said, if you have a conscience, how do you stand by? Yeah. How do you go, oh, well, you know, that's, a, that's unfortunate and, you know, keep going. So I, what you're saying and what you, the examples you're giving are very important. Well, thank you. And then just to go back to your original question about the what the Biden administration has done, I think one of the more egregious things they've done is they have eliminated the requirement that um, that adverse effects from abortion pills are reported. So there is no more reporting of adverse effects unless it leads to death. But so excessive bleeding, infection, permanent, I mean, a, a woman having to have a hysterectomy, so permanent sterilization, all of those very, very serious um, effects. And we, we're actually dealing with a lawsuit right now um, involving two women who um, who had late-term abortions using in part abortion drugs and then completed with a surgical abortion um, have suffered just unimaginable consequences and, and almost died um, in part because everybody thinks these drugs are safe and they are not. And now what's going to happen is if you don't report on them and you have no data on adverse effects, so guess what? Next time around they say, okay, well, we can deregulate it even further because there are we haven't been able to find any negative effects. Well, of course you haven't found any. Right. You've prohibited the reporting of, of adverse effects. And then there's a case that we've been litigating, trying to get results and reports and records, documents from yeah. the FDA. And I think based upon the judge's last order, when they project it out, we'll have all the records in 66 years. Yeah. yeah. So we're supposed to wait wow. 66 years because they only tell them, all you have to do is 500 pages a month. And I so, yeah. And I so appreciate the work of, well, your work, and the work of Judicial Watch because um, because you guys are going after that information. So um, thank you. Thank you, you for that. You are very welcome. It is our pleasure. And any way that we can cooperate and coordinate with you, it is, uh, it's our very great pleasure. Alexandra, where can folks uh, learn more about Life Legal Defense and your work and get a better understanding of, of what you're up to and Perhaps they want to donate and support you or they want to read your lawsuits or some of your documentation. Where should they go? Um, so I would direct them to our website so they can go to LLDF.org for LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org. Um, we have all our, our information about our organization. We have a donate button, of course, um, and um, and people can learn about who we are and the kind of cases that we handle. And then we also have um, a Facebook account, um, which is heavily suppressed, I have to say, by by Facebook, um, I'm unfortunately, sure it is, yeah. and then an Instagram account as well at at Life Legal and Twitter. Great. So, yeah, Alexandra, I'm going to give you the last word. What should folks know about you and your work at Life Legal Defense? So, um, just how important it is that attorneys are engaged in this kind of work. That um, there are just uh, so many cases where people 
people's rights, people with pro-life views, their rights are being trampled on. And our role is to have their backs, to represent them in court, um, and to get them back doing the work that they that they want to be doing without um, without being discriminated against. That's tremendous. Very, very good. Alexandra Snyder, CEO of Life Legal Defense. Thank you so much for joining us on Watch. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. I'm Chris Farrell on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.